Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 20 of the Roses and Rhetoric podcast. I am your host, Joseph Stanford. With me, my humble and scrappy co-host, Jimmy Hackett. Jimmy, we got a very special episode today. Why don't we tell the people what it's going to be about? This is going to be a great episode. So uh, for those of you who have been following the, the show now, uh, I do live in Houston, uh, Texas. Everybody, of course, knows we've had a bit of a, a, bit of a cold spell these uh, past couple of days. Um, we actually just got power back in our apartment a couple of days ago. It's been uh, touch and go. It's been slow and go on the ice, on the uh, I-45, so to speak. Um, and I understand that my, my charming co-host uh, from uh, Portland, Oregon, also had a bit of uh, weather this past week as well. Yep, and uh, I decided to go the route of Ted Cruz and head south from Portland, Oregon, down to southern Arizona for this episode. So here I am in Tucson today. And it looks like you're joining us from uh, some kind of rehabilitation center or something. Tell us a little bit about where you're located. You have a nice fountain behind you and a nice, a nice bench. This is a uh, very scenic. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a Zen garden for the uh, mentally insane, actually. And uh, I like to come here to regain my sanity from time to time. Well, that is our, of course, our, our tar- target audience for the Rose Rhetoric podcast. Uh, this was uh, an interesting week because on Sunday or maybe Monday, all every day is run together when you're out of electricity and you can't tell what time it is. But at uh, some point, uh, we lost power and we lost water. And my uh, wife and myself uh, found ourselves out in the front yard with buckets collecting snow melt in order to use to flush our toilets. And then the next day we had to go to work because we got power back and it was a nice reflection on kind of how boring life feels when the day before you're uh, gathering snow to flush your toilets, that everything kind of fails in comparison to uh, living on the edge, uh, like you're doing when you're living through a snow apocalypse. Did you have a similar experience returning back to mundane normalcy when uh, you, you've escaped the uh, winter storm of uh, Portland? Uh, I didn't have any uh, toilet malfunctions, no, but I am curious, did you have to melt the snow first before you put it in the toilet bowl or how did you, how did you do that? Yeah, luckily we did not. Um, we found a gutter out kind of at the front of the complex that we put a bucket underneath. So we we're collecting water that way. Um, and we, ha- we were fortuitous enough to have a couple of buckets that could hold a sizable amount of water. And uh, we also had a, a fairly large plastic bin that uh, we were able to fill up with water as well. So we kind of, at one point, it was like a slow trickling through our kitchen faucet that we were just using to slowly fill up this giant bucket in case we really lost all the water again. So it was a nice amount of problem solving, good amount of uh, living uh, kind of by the uh, you know sweat of your brow, so to speak. And um, I was lucky enough to go to the to the grocery store probably about a day before the the real winter catastrophe hit Houston. And in front of me, there was these two college couples that were checking out at the store together, and they had uh, in their in their grocery cart all the essentials, which for these four people included two bottles of red wine, a bottle of tropical premixed. Uh, uh, alcoholic beverages, a box of chocolate chip cookies, and a very small container of toilet paper. So uh, they were planning on just writing it out the old-fashioned way. The uh, <laughs> I was very, I was very impressed by their uh, by their scrappiness. It was uh, very impressive. Well, we're glad to hear that you guys are coming out of it all right, and uh, that we're able to have Wi-Fi for today's episode, so we can keep <laughs> the the unbroken streak going. It was uh, fun. I uh, played a game seeing how many pages I could read in, in a book without stopping because that was all I could do was read by like the uh, natural light of uh, kind of like this uh, foggy winter haze that's been over Houston for the past few days. 
And I think I could read without stop 30 pages. That was like my limit. I could read 30 pages at once. I thought that was pretty good. I thought 30 pages is uh, respectable for, for, uh, for myself. Yeah. 30 pages before you got to take a social media break or something. Yeah. Social media or in my case, just like sleeping because I didn't want to waste my phone battery and I couldn't log onto my computer. So yeah, it was, um, it was good. I'm happy to be back and I am for anybody else still uh, without power, without water uh, thoughts with you guys. Uh, hopefully we'll get through this and um, enjoy a, a bright warm spring or uh, something to that effect. But um, this is not going to be an episode just complaining about the weather. We actually have a new segment uh, we're bringing into the R&R podcast uh, environment that we are creating here. And uh, we have a, 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 a good friend of the podcast, a musical correspondent of sorts, who will be providing us with a weekly album recommendation. And we have such a recommendation for this week's uh, podcast. So, Joe, when you're ready, tell us a little bit about this album's recommendation. Uh, yes. So our, our the official Roses and Rhetoric uh, music correspondent has submitted the official Roses and Rhetoric album of this week. And this week, the album is from it's from 1994 and it's called Southern Playistic Cadillac Music. And the artist is Outcast. And this is a great album. It's one of uh, Outcast's first albums and it was actually written when they were 18. And uh, Jim, I'm not sure if you got a chance to listen to this yet, but I've uh, I've heard it quite a few times over the past week. And I just want to read one of the interludes from the episode because I think it sums it up well. It gives a good, uh, good synopsis of what it's about. And uh, here it goes. So operating under the crooked American system too long, outcast, pronounced outcast, adjective, meaning homeless or unaccepted in society. But let's look deeper than that. Are you an outcast? If you understand and feel the basic principles and fundamental truths contained within this music, you probably are. If you think it's all about pimping hoes and slamming Cadillac does, you probably a cracker or a neighbor that think he a cracker or maybe just don't understand. An outcast is someone who is not considered to be part of the normal world. He is looked at differently. He is not accepted because of his clothes, his hair, his occupations, his beliefs, or his skin color. Now look at yourself. Are you an outcast? I know I am. As a matter of fact, fuck being anything else. It's only so much time left in this crazy world. Wake up, neighbors, and realize what's going on around you. Poisoning of the food and water, tampering of cigarettes, disease engineering control over your life. Take back your existence or die like a punk. This is Big Rube saying right to the real and death to the fakers. Peace out. So I, I want to get your take on that, but I, I want to I just want to say that that's kind of what the album is about, is it's about not necessarily the typical gang banging type lyrics that you find in most podcasts, although there is a little bit of slamming Cadillac does and pimping hoes. Don't get me wrong, but I, the bigger theme is treating these people, these outcasts, as they call them, and kind of making it seem OK to be different. And making it seem okay to be yourself in this in this world, etc. Was there anything in that that resonated with you? It reminds me of uh, a, a a motif that comes up in dystopian novels, 1984, Brave New World, etc. Where what defines the essential character, and also of course the great Fahrenheit 451. Um, but what what 
kind of encapsulates the persona of the main character is that at some point they begin to realize that the world they're in is completely absurd. And that makes them an outcast to society. In other words, they're living in a world that makes sense to them for the longest time. And then there's some triggering moment where all of a sudden the absurdity of the world they're living in is completely illuminated and nothing makes sense anymore. The idea of a fireman being somebody who burns books is ridiculous. The idea of living in 1984, where you know one day you're at war with this country, but then the next day, oh no, no, we were never at war with that country. It was always at war with the other country, and that country is our ally. It is so on and so forth. The making, the the, the realization of absurd aspects of society and of a contemporary world is not just the mark of an outcast, but actually is the mark of a genius. And it's, it's long been my view. I think we have not talked about this before in the past. I think your view as well, that um, artists are especially tuned in some ways to identifying absurdity. And I think in the lyrics of, of Outkast, I mean, as a group, they have a number of great songs, but uh, picking up on, on these absurdities and realizing, you know, what we're being told is normal is, is in fact normal and that it's common but isn't correct. And there's a huge difference between something being normal and something being right. And I think the lyrics in that, in that interlude that you just gave, I summarized that characteristic. I mean, all of us at all times should be on the lookout for things that flat out do not make sense. And we talk all the time on this podcast about how as, as, as social creatures, we are wired in some ways to work against that uh, action because of things like social proof where we look to people around us to define norms and to also define behaviors. Again, I mean, really it's all about action. What are we doing that matters? And when we use social proof as a guidance for our actions, usually we will be okay, but it can blind us to absurdities when it is not okay. And it doesn't take a a genius or a historian to go through the history books and to find all these examples of behavior of the past that was both common and would have been uh, enforced by the mechanism of social proof that we now look back on and go, how absurd was that that was ever possible? And the list goes on and on. There, I mean, they're, they're all cliche examples, but when I, when I hear lyrics like that from Outkast or when I read dystopian novels, it reminds me of trying to develop within ourselves that character trait of being on the lookout for absurdities and to, and to realize that something being common does not make it correct. I think that that is a, is a hard thing to, to do, but is important nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absurdities are very hard to recognize, especially when you're in the system. You know, it's humans are pretty, are designed to kind of just go with things like not really think for themselves. Like humans as a whole typically aren't an individualistic creature. We, we, we largely get a lot of our ideas and a lot of our, thoughts and politics we just get we just download it from the from um, the mainstream in different ways so i think it there is something there to say that there are these artists in the world that that live outside the system in a way and that can kind of get a third third party perspective on things and they can call out and really recognize a lot of the absurdities that we're living in and i think that this album Southern playlistic Cadillac music by Outkast is, is, a, is a great reminder for that. And, you know, it's only an hour, 17 songs, and it's got a lot of great, a lot of great hits on it. I mean, it's got Ain't No Thing, uh, Player's Ball, Crumbling Herb, Get Up, Get Out. Um, I know these songs might not mean something to someone that doesn't know a lot about Outkast, but if, if you know, you know. And uh, 
I, this is, this album gets a 10 out of 10 for my score. When you're listening to an album, how important is it for you that the album itself tells a cohesive story? Do you listen to albums as a kind of spoken word poetry or do you more enjoy albums where every song is possibly, you know, kind of its own standalone artistic achievement? Do you you like when an album is designed to be one cohesive story from beginning to end? Uh, I do like that. Um, I do like the storyline. Typically, when I listen to music, I'm I don't know what it's called. There's got to be a term for this, but just how my brain works, like it doesn't process like words very well. So like if I'm watching a movie or something like it's it's kind of difficult for me to pick up all the words that are being said without subtitles or like remembering movie quotes is something that I'm horrible at. Like there, there's some people just remember every single word from every single line of Dumb and Dumber or something like just watching it through once. But I'm, I'm the exact opposite way of that. And uh, throughout throughout time, I've I've just lyrics have been something difficult for me to process in music. And like a lot a lot of what I get from music is more the 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 attitude and the wavelength and the the moods that it sets. Mm. And that was my biggest driver. But um, I was listening to this album on the plane the other day and really taking a conscious effort to just like listen to every lyric and piece it all together and like follow the follow the narrative as it goes through the album and i was i i I mean i was blown away by it like i i I felt like i finally learned how to listen to music (laughs) um but yeah i think that narrative is is uh what makes great good albums and turns them into great albums you know i was thinking as you were as you were talking i was thinking you know with I, i would imagine the majority of music today is consumed by apps like Spotify or YouTube or Pandora, where the song being played is through some kind of shuffle. And so because it's playing in a shuffle that you're losing the cohesive narrative of the album, because it'll be one song from this album, another song from another album, then it'll be an ad about erectile dysfunction, and then it'll be another song from another album, and then another ad about erectile Yeah, I mean, you know, there's no... in because every song is, is, is separate and because we all have, you know, we probably all have ED or something uh, where we're, we're just losing the, the album as a whole unit. That is, it's more about making a good song today. I would imagine, I don't know this to be true, but it, it seems to me that there would be more focus on the musician making a good song rather than making a good album. And I can imagine that creatively, that's a very different process. It'd be like the difference between writing, a short story versus Lord of the Rings. I mean, both are important, but it's a different act of creation to tell one story for a long time versus a punchy, memorable quote or something along those lines. Mm. Yeah, like like record stores, right? Like you used to have to, that used to be how you release your music was through, through a record, through an album. Mm-hmm. But those no longer exist. And like you said, with Spotify, it's just streaming. So like, a lot of times artists will just drop an album that just has one or two good songs and the rest are just really just filler just to say they put out an album. And I see that continue across like uh, movies too. Like movies used to be a big deal. And then, you know, you started having Netflix and Amazon prime and all these TV show streaming services that reduce that. And then that was further amplified when COVID came around. Cause then you can't go to the movies. So like all these big blockbuster films are, um, you can't get funding for them because you can't yeah. you can't debut them like remember top gun was supposed to come out 
Whatever happened to that? That was supposed to come out like last summer. Top Gun 2, baby. Yeah, yeah Top yeah. Gun 2 but with uh, Tom Cruise, best in the business. What, what happened to business. that? Uh, yeah, it's it's crazy. I remember listening. Let me do two things on that. The first is uh, your point about, and really this is a point that I've heard from people like Christopher Nolan make, is that there is a tremendous difference, or that there should be a tremendous difference between watching a movie in a theater with a giant screen and you're around other people and the surround sound is rattling your brain versus, you know, watching a movie on like your fucking phone or something. I mean, can you imagine if you watch John Wick on your phone, what would that be? It'd be nothing like, you know, these, these cinemas are designed literally to be an immersive experience. And um, we are absolutely losing that right now with movies. And I think, in, in some ways, maybe that drives for for uh, people that are making movies to, to try to get more out of narrative and out of out of storytelling devices that don't rely on the effect. But I I don't want people to feel that those effects should be discounted. I mean, the point of making a movie is that as an artist, you should be maximizing every aspect of your medium. If you're making a movie for a theater, you should be using to the fullest extent possible every aspect of that movie theater, so that it could not be told as well on a cell phone or it could not be told as well in a book. If you're making a movie, it should be because the movie is the best way to tell the story you're trying to tell, plain and simple. And we're losing that by having theaters being shut down. That's point number one. Point number two is a, is a point made by a uh, you know conservative social critic who passed away recently named, named Roger uh, Scruton, I think is his name, maybe Scruton. I actually don't know his last name. Uh, but... I thought you were going to drop the Rush Limbaugh bomb there. No, no. Uh, Roger, Roger Scruton is, uh, I think, a little more, a little more high class than uh, Rush Limbaugh. But I think, you know, he had this, uh, this essay that he wrote a while back called The Tyranny of Pop Music, which is that basically the way that we experience music today is it's background music for things. That everywhere you go, there's music in the background. When you're driving, when you're in the mall, when you're walking. I, I, I've been in, in a Phoenix Fashion Square where when you're walking around outside, there's music. No one's fucking quiet anymore. Everywhere is this fucking noise. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. And these songs are just these kind of monotonous drones in the background. And you're thinking, is that art? I mean, is that really, it, it's just it's just filling the background with, with, with noise. And so- Elevator music. <laughs> elevator music, exactly right. Which is not to say that there are not important, you know, quote unquote, pop songs. There are, but the problem is that when you hear music all the time, you are losing the ability to pinpoint the truly creative artistic endeavors and it all becomes this background smear of bullshit and you can't tell anything apart anymore. I mean, you're hearing this like, mm-hmm. like oh, is that Lady Gaga? Is that, you know, Kesha? I mean, you can't hear anymore. It's just all in the background. And you're not really given opportunity to really sit and listen to music. I mean, when people used to go to a symphony hall, you weren't doing something else with the music. You were listening to the music when you were listening to the outcast album you were listening to it you know yeah. that's what made it uh, that is what made it an experience and so I, I i actually quite enjoy a number of pop songs right now but the point is that if, if the music is not good enough that it is all that you need then it's not it's not good music if you're playing that song to drown out the background and you don't care to actually listen and to take in the music in and of itself and it's not a good song. A, a good song should draw in your attention and demand your attention. And uh, I, I fear that we are not giving music that opportunity because we're using it to pass time quickly rather than enjoying it as an artistic experience. 
So that's that's something that I was talking to someone about yesterday. Um, I know that we've had Jack on the podcast and he talked about he's probably the first person I knew that actually did this, but I've heard about it on like Twitter and trends and Reddit and whatnot. But the, the dopamine fast, mm. which is where you it's kind of like Lent, right? Uh, that's very appropriate because today is uh, was it Holy Saturday, the day after Good Friday. I don't know what it's called. Um, yeah, but, it was Ash Wednesday on Wednesday. I don't know what day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the the idea is that you purposely deprive yourself or you purposely fast from from things that provide dopamine to you. So, like for example, maybe you don't drink coffee every morning, or mm. you set a window where you just don't have dopamine during that time. You don't listen to music. You don't do coffee. You don't watch TV. You don't do drugs. You don't whatever it is you just mm. you just skip it and the idea is that that gives you know if you routinely do that it gives your your dopamine receptors and your your, your neurotransmitters a chance to recharge and your sensitivity to recharge and then the effect is that your baseline goes up a little bit mm. now i've never tried anything like this and i am skeptical of the results but uh it's it's a thing and it's out there and we were talking about music that's what reminded me because a lot of people just play that music in the background just to it, it's almost like a, a dopamine race that they get yeah it feels like yeah i think and we, we were talking about this last week that it, it becomes a device that you can use to make being bored okay and i think yeah. what we would rather people do is if you're bored find something to do i mean it don't don't find a way to make <laughs> being bored fun uh you know boredom is your body rejecting against whatever it is you're doing if you're bored doing something try to do something different and obviously you can't always do that but I, I, I hate the idea of somebody, uh, you know, wasting a weekend or something kind of just being bored with music in the background, you know, and, and, and again, this is not to say that listening to music is not doing something. It absolutely can be, but you have to make it something. You have to be actively listening to the music. And um, it, it's all too easy to not do that because in a sense, we are desensitized to music by having it on all of the time. And we are not encouraged to really pay attention to a song we are encouraged to have music playing in the background. And I think that that's a disservice because I, again, I'll say it again. I think a lot of artists today are, are extremely talented and their songs warrant listening to, but uh, in order to discover that you have to put in the active listening uh, to have that be accomplished. I mean, I, I would, I would say that probably of all the cliches we hear now, I would say active listening is probably a cliche worth paying attention to that. There absolutely is a difference between hearing somebody versus listening. And um, I think that that's a thing that we should probably pay, all of us pay more attention to. And especially when it comes to things like audiobooks, it's, are you, are you hearing the audiobook or are you listening to the audiobook? Are, are you playing the audiobook while you're doing work at work? And, or are you listening to it like you would a book that you were reading? And I think those are two very different things, but lo and behold, the little timer going across on your phone doesn't slow up depending on how well you're focusing on it. It doesn't give a damn about whether or not you're hearing what the author is saying. And so it's, it's, it's all too easy just to have, you know, things pass us by, especially when it's in the audio realm that uh, visual does a better job of captivating our attention. But uh, the audio is a little, a little easier to let slip by without giving careful analysis. Yeah, that's a good, uh, good distinguishment between active activities versus passive activities. And that's something I've been trying to do in my own life is, is, uh, 
to do more active activities. Like when you're listening to the music, you're, you're listening to the music. You're not just doing 10 other things and have it in the background. Or like when you're watching a movie, like I realized like when was the last time I just sat down and just like watched a movie without like flipping through my phone or like going on my computer or like cooking a meal at the same time. Like when was the last time that ever happened? Or, you know what I mean? Like making little Anything. comments to be like, I do that all the time. Right. Like watching a movie, like I make a joke about it or something, but well, yeah. that's fun <laughs> but no i i totally agree with you i mean it's it's um i it, it actually almost comes down to respect in a way that that if you're going to take in a piece of art we should give the artist kind of this this idea that we we defer to their talent in a sense that we basically say we're going to um give you the benefit of the doubt that this is worth our attention and that that like, we, we should we should grant them that uh, that privilege in, in a sense, because somebody made this, you know, created this thing and they thought it was good enough to give to us. We should we should take them up on that and, and give it our attention for that reason alone almost. And then, you know, afterwards, if you don't like it, I'll listen to it again or watch it again. But in that first instance, you know, give it a chance, I would say. Yeah, got to got to respect the artists. I think it just just uh, mental well-being, too, because yeah. it. I think that people just get in this habit of being afraid to just like really dive down and like be conscious of the activities they're doing. And that in a way is just a, it's, it's a, it's a habit of escaping reality. And the more you escape reality and what's in front of you, the, I think the less happy you be. So, yeah. Do you, do you think that part of a reason somebody would, would judge a movie is a sense of jealousy? that in, in, in a sense they want to avoid being blown away because they don't want it to be better than their creation there's kind of this idea of like i'll kind of get this movie 50 percent of my attention because how good can it really be but that's that's an that's an attempt for them to avoid really being blown away by an experience and in a sense feeling inferior to the person's creative uh creation <laughs> Is that like uh, like saying like, oh, I already have a favorite movie, so I'm just yeah. going to kind of half pay attention to this because I don't want to have to change all my Facebook right. posts saying I have a new favorite movie or <laughs> exactly. something like that? Changing all my at work icebreakers of a uh, favorite movie. Uh, I've been saying it's eyes wide shut for so many years. I can't say it's something else now. Do you uh, actually say that in work environments? <laughs> not in work environments. Uh I love Eyes Wide Shut. I mean, I feel like there's a there's a small collection of people that really love that movie, and I, I have the true story, it. right? <laughs> I've been there before. No, uh, that'd be for another episode. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I I I love Eyes Wide Shut. First off, I love Tom Cruise. I've I've always said that I love Tom Cruise. Best in the business. Best in the business. Best in the business. And uh, I absolutely love Eyes Wide Shut, and I think it's a great movie. And I love Kubrick as well. Uh, another best in the business, another goat, if you will. Him and Tom Brady and Tom Cruise all hang out. You know, well, I guess Kubrick is dead, <laughs> but um, when they were all alive, I guess they would all hang out. But um, I, I love Eyes Wide Shut, and I, I, uh, I mean, and also I, I was telling you this on an earlier episode too, but the movie The Master, which I think is like. I think you could you could say with a straight face is like is, is a perfect movie. Doesn't it doesn't mean that it's your favorite movie. So if you're watching it, I I, I couldn't change a, a single thing in it without making it worse. I mean, it was just so well done. It was a true example of expert craftsmanship uh, in the uh, cinema experience. Yeah. Um. What's the what's the verdict on Kubrick? Did did he get knocked or did did he die of what was his cause of death? Like, what's the 
conspiracy theories on that. <laughs> I didn't know that there were any. I'm, I'm surprised to hear that. I mean, I, I knew that he, um, I knew that he was famously very harsh on actors and actresses that worked on his films, that there was talk about him being, you know, very, um, very harsh on the actress and the shining. Uh, and maybe even harsh isn't strong enough a word. I really, I, I don't remember all the details. So I'm trying to be kind of vague about it, but um, that, that I did hear. And then um, I knew that he was also, I, I, I think this is true that, that he was very much a perfectionist as well. So I imagine working for people like that could be quite hard, but I never knew any theories about him having a mysterious death or not. I, I think he has a yeah. kid, doesn't he? Or is that not, does he have a daughter or something? Oh, maybe. Yeah. Uh, the, the story I heard was that, and this is the conspiracy theory I heard, let me oh, make good. that clear, um, was that when making Eyes Wide Shut, because that was one of the last movies he made, right? Could have been. I really don't know. And, and the movie is about the, uh, is it, it's the Freemasons or the Illuminati or some sort of deep state secret society type <laughs> themed movie. Deep state. And, and yeah, and I and the the conspiracy theory goes that he exposed some things that a lot of people weren't very happy about him exposing, and I think he died within a very short time frame after that. I don't know the cause of death or anything, but there's a lot of speculation that the contents mm. of that movie, someone decided, all right, this this guy's got to go. Interesting. Yeah, we can't keep this going. We will, we will have to get our our roses and rhetoric. Uh, Correspondence movie correspondent yeah on the yeah. movie correspondence on the uh on the uh the uh, case and to, to see what it what it was um if anybody listening to this i watch the movie i really recommend it it's a great movie and uh i in my opinion it, i think in, in my opinion i think his best movie um if i didn't pick that one i would probably pick 2001 a space odyssey which i watched recently and really enjoyed um as well so Definitely Kubrick it out there and, and, and watch it. And, uh, you know, I'm hopefully he's resting in peace and hopefully he died of natural causes. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Let me, let's, I, I want to talk a little bit about, so I've, I've been reading this book. Um, I haven't finished yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm nearly done with it. But it's, um, it's, it's a, from an author named Rene Girard, who was this like social critic and anthropologist and, the name of the book is called Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. And the overarching theme of the book is that almost every aspect of, of human culture can be explained by our utilizing of a scapegoat mechanism in order to prevent wider spread of violence. And the idea is that violence arises from people copying other people and desiring the same things as other people, which naturally leads to conflict. And the way that we avoid the conflict is that we, in a sense, gang up on an outside group as a way to unify ourselves to avoid wider spread of violence. And so an, an example of this on like a lower scale would be a situation where a group of friends gossip about another friend and in that process become more kind of cohesive and unified as a group. Mm. And where I want to talk or what I, what I want to talk about now is I, I, we will talk about that book in the future when I finish it. I want to talk about a, a, a little piece of that book now, which is jealousy. And I think jealousy is going to be one of the key things that as a species, if you will, we need to be careful of, especially in the context of two things, one of which is um, 
social media and the other is with extremely volatile asset prices. Uh, when you see things like Bitcoin or GameStop stock or any number of you know, Dogecoin, whatever the hell that is, when you see in short time periods, these assets just ballooning in price, it's you will see a lot of people make a ton of money. And I think there will be this, this instinct in society to be jealous of those people. And I think jealousy is extremely toxic. I think it's extremely uh, corrosive to social cohesion. And I think does lead to violence. And I want to talk about uh, things we can do to avoid being jealous of other people. And I think it's actually kind of easy. I think it's a matter of just willing yourself to go through the action of celebrating other people's achievements. And I want to pass this over to you for your thoughts on it. But in particular, um, a, a bit of a conversation on this idea of, of abundance as a mindset and how we can, we can frame ourselves to view abundance as a, not only a good thing, but also a way to avoid this zero-sum, they win because I lose, I win because they lose mentality, which I think is leads to jealousy and ultimately is very destructive. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's way more common of a paradigm that people have than they, they should have, right? Like a lot of people think, oh, this person is doing better, so that means there's not enough out there for me. And je jealousy is a tough one for me because – I think that it does have some utility if channeled properly. In other words, like that's just, that's like what competition is. Like, you know, if a Kobe Bryant scores more points in, in a game than my MJ did, then MJ is going to get a little jealous. He's going to practice a little harder, come back stronger the next week type thing. Yep. But I don't think that's the type of jealousy that most people have. I think that the type of jealousy most people have doesn't uh, lead to harder work and dedication. It just leads to resentment. And I've seen that a lot in my own life. Like I can think of some people in my life that are no longer there um, from what I, 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 I think to believe and what I believe to be believe is that it's just jealousy. Like, like, uh, I don't know, you can listen to a Drake song. He talks about it all the time. Like, you know, <laughs> it's lonely at the top. Like as you move up, like people don't want to follow and they actually start to resent you for your accomplishments rather than congratulate you and, and get excited and celebrate with you like you described. And that, that's a, that's a real high form of consciousness to be able to, to step back and show appreciation and celebrate in other people's uh, victories, because uh, I'd say the majority of people today do not do that, do not know how to do that. And they just, they're not even aware that they have control over doing that. I would argue. And let's let, let's let's create a, a logical framework for why you should celebrate your friends being successful. And let's let's start from a from a purely selfish perspective. I am better off having a bunch of friends with a bunch of money because then if I need money, I'm closer to it. Now, that is that is true if they're your friends, which is the premise of the argument. So I want my friends to be wealthy for many reasons, but one of them is that that makes my life a little bit easier because now all of a sudden my, my probability of being, you know, on the street or something is diminished. So mm -hmm. there's, there's even just a, a purely selfish reason for wanting your friends to be successful, which is the idea that you're building a society in which more people can take care of each other. That is a good thing, but it's also important to build on the idea of learning from other people, how they became successful and trying to, to emulate some of their behavior when appropriate, rather than 
looking at their success and trying to find ways of cutting it down. And I, that, that to me is when the jealousy becomes pernicious, where it's one thing for Michael Jordan, because I think you're totally right. And I think competition in the right amount is good. Where it becomes bad is when you are so focused on the outcome that you're willing to cheat to beat somebody, or you're willing to cut them down to beat somebody, or you're willing to make excuses in order to beat somebody. All of that is bad. And so the key thing with jealousy, and this is a, a point that's made by people like Adam Carolla, is the idea of internalization. That when I observe somebody being successful, I'm going to objectively observe what they are doing, copy their good behavior, which, do, which does not mean copying all of their behavior, because of course, a factor of luck is always in place when people are successful. And that it, it's, it's good to admit that, but there's also, it would be bad to not learn anything from their behavior and to find excuses for why you're where you are and why they are, why, why, or where, or why they are where they are. And I think it's very common, much to your point, it's very common to do that. And it is hard to applaud your friend's success, but I think we can just make ourselves do it. I mean, it may, I know that that's naive, but really we can just literally just say out loud, I am happy for a success. I, I, I believe in the power of faking it until you make it on some of these things. This is an example where I think it's appropriate. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's easier said than done, but I think it's pretty necessary. And I agree with what you about the, the selfish um, incentive to not be jealous. I'm all about selfish incentives because I think we're all pretty self nature. And I think that's self-evident. Um, and, and I think that's a good thing to get, to get people going. Um, I don't know. What do you, what, what do you do in your psyche or in your life to, to deal with that? Like, are you tempted to just write people off? Be like, Oh, look, that person's like a professional athlete now. Like fuck them. I don't want to like be associated with them or that person's a, went to this school or got this job or did that thing like what? yeah I, I i i will not pretend to be an angel i mean i definitely have jealous instincts and i definitely you know get jealous of other people what i what i try to do in all cases is to really focus on the fact that their success is not at my expense and that it really isn't true that somebody succeeding prevents me from succeeding it it, it, it may be true in, in a very narrow microcosm of, you know, if two people want the same job, there's only one job, one of them gets it. But why should that matter? Go find another one, get better until next time. Like, it, it, it's far too easy to, to let jealousy erode a sense of responsibility. And I think that is what makes it pernicious. When the jealousy eats away at your willingness to improve for next time, or finding a better path forward. I, I heard a great quote the other day, and I wish I could remember where I saw it, but it was the idea of making yourself a monopoly of one that, and again, back to the point that, that you made before, there will only be one person of you. That is a monopoly. That is to your advantage. Yeah. Monopolies are competitive advantages. Find a place where your monopoly is valued. And so in that sense, jealousy is in a sense, somewhat of a, of a, of a, uh, an illusion because they really can't ever compete with you in your total mm -hmm. person. They can compete with aspects of you, but it is your job to find an aspect of yourself that is that that is better than theirs. And so, I, I really think the key is having an abundance-focused mindset, and to and to and to focus as a society, if you will, 
on a society of growth and of creating new opportunity, that that is really the only way to avoid the pernicious jealousy is by avoiding zero-sum situations. That is the, the purpose, uh, or the, at least say should, could be uh, the purpose of a, of a capitalistic or of an entrepreneurship-focused society is the idea that we are always looking to do new, to do better, to do bigger, to grow. There's a moral dimension to that because that, that growth and improvement can improve people's lives. But there's also a psychological component to it. The idea that if you have avenues to channel um, competition in a way that leads to improvement, that is better than a competition that leads to jealousy and resentment and excuse making. Yeah, you also got to recognize that a lot of these people that you are that you find yourself being jealous of, like you're only seeing certain parts of them. Yeah. Like you're not, you, you don't have a camera following them around the whole time and you're not being jealous of their entire lives, their lives right. in their entirety. You're, you're, right. you're being jealous of whatever gets posted, whatever you see on their LinkedIn, whatever you see on their Instagram, whatever you see in X place. Yeah. And, and also like a lot of these high performers, I mean, like the classic example is the, the astronauts that first went to the moon, right? Like they were, I don't know, like the Armstrong and uh, and uh, Buzz Aldrin, those guys, like they were like in their 30s, early 30s, and they were astronauts for NASA, first men on the moon. Like, where, where do you go from there? And after coming back down to Earth, literatively and figuratively, yeah. uh, they, they had a lot of issues. Like Buzz Aldrin's, he fought depression and alcoholism and all this. Like all those guys were just, they were in deep trouble. Like they they couldn't get back to that level. And it was a uh, very problemsome from them. And you see it in sports, you see it in entertainment actors, like th these people really aren't ha that happy, even though they have these hills up in there, these houses up in the Hollywood Hills and whatnot, they're, they're no happier than the, the, the poor people that you see around town. Yeah. I, I think that that's definitely true in a lot of cases and it, a good point too, that you're, you're only seeing a small part of it and, you know, more to the point on, you know, social media, et cetera, that it's a very narrow window into the lives of these people. Um, I, I guess I, I just want to make sure, um, you know, people take the point we're making properly and not misconstrue it. I'm not against competition. I'm not against people wanting to, you know, learn from other people. I am against, I'm against jealousy when it has the potential for violence and when it has the potential for people to bang up on somebody else or to, you know, try to take something from somebody else. And my, my fear really is that, um, that, um, that will be made more possible by people making money in any variety of volatile asset markets, um, where there's definitely a, 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 large role of luck involved with all these things that will become an excuse to be mad at people for having more money than you have or something. I would just say, don't do that. Don't take away their success. Don't take away their accomplishments. Don't take away their, their, their financial earning or their, or their, their financial standings. Um, be happy, celebrate with them, be happy that they're wealthy. And uh, I think easier said than done to be sure, but uh, a behavior that can be learned nonetheless, and I think will make your life happier uh, and it will make you a better friend in, in, the, uh, in the process. Yeah, we, we also need to encourage the people that do find success from things like uh, like Doge or from Bitcoin to have a, have a little bit of perspective on it. Like just be like, oh, yeah, I know everything about investing now because I just uh, right. <laughs> luckily made all this money off Bitcoin, which is just pure speculation, totally unpredictable. Like, yeah, I know more than everyone else. Like. Yeah. 
no, no, it's not the case. Like you, you flipped the coin and you hit heads. You called heads and you hit it. Like that's uh, yeah. it could have just as easily gone the other way. That doesn't make you an expert. That doesn't mean that you need to go and spike the football in front of all these people that, uh, you know, actually do know what they're doing or do, do understand risk and the markets, yeah. etc. And I think that would reduce some of the violence. But yeah, uh, a really good point. And yeah. in fact, a point that I think is goes hand in hand with the jealousy antidote is the idea of humility in victory, which uh, is as, as, as timely a, a lesson as ever, and certainly a, a lesson now, um, especially when there are so many people that are without a job because of the lockdowns, et cetera. I mean, now is not the time to go out and flaunting, you know, your uh, 10 steps to success program or whatever the hell it may be. Um, Humility definitely goes a long way and is uh, one of those timeless virtues that uh, absolutely goes hand in hand with the idea of trying to prevent jealousy from becoming this pernicious violence generator. Um, all right. I, just to change gears a little bit, I've been reading a book too this week that I think dovetails in with this in certain ways. Um, the book is called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And I don't know if you've heard of Napoleon Hill. Um, he's an author that predates, he's a businessman that predates Dale Carnegie. And he started writing like business books back then. And he writes about a lot of the same things as like Norman Vincent Peale would write about or, uh, or Tony Robbins or people of that nature. And his whole thing is that you can, and I'll talk about this later after I finish the book. I'm only like, like you, I'm only a part way through this, but um, I've also researched to research him heavily pretty much on the internet too, um, outside of the book. But he, he's all about just the, the keys to success you were talking about is uh, just laying it out. Like you have to really zero in your focus on just one thing you want. And then you, you, you re-emphasize, you re reiterate that focus over and over in your mind. Like he suggests writing it down a few times a day before bed and when you wake up. Kind of similar to like the Scott Adams affirmations, which I think totally work. But uh, he says that the universe will give you whatever wage you ask for it. Like you just, most people just don't ask for the wage that they want. They just think right. that it's out of their hands, but by, by just focusing in and getting your focus directed, like directly on one thing that you want or one and be specific about it too. And just turning that focus into a habit. So that's always at the forefront of your mind. It literally changes how you look at the world and how you interact with the world, not in like a supernatural way, but just in a way that, that that things start to fall in place yeah and i've i've seen this happen in my own life um i'll talk about that a little bit later in a future podcast but it it it's unbelievable like just the results that i've seen in my life and uh starting to look at some of the super ultra successful people around me that also do the same thing and it's it, it feels like the biggest kept secret now i know there's a netflix documentary the secret right. that but that's that's kind of the same thing Right. right. Um, I hate I hate how they produced it and sure. put it out there. But yeah. I mean, what that it's what if that's the answer to everything? What if that's you can get anything you want as long as you just focus in on it, habitualize your, your desire for it and then just let the pieces fall in place? Yeah, I think I think that the the non which I, the point you're making is the the non supernatural aspect of it is, I think, the part to focus on that it makes sense. If you wake up every day and do things that work towards the goal that you are trying to work towards, 
then just by definition, you will get closer to that end goal. I mean, that's, that's, that's what it is. I mean, it's, it's finding out the number of steps that there are between where you are and where you want to be and always making sure that you are taking a step towards that end goal. And I, I think, you know, this ties in with uh, Peter Thiel's idea of, of having an optimistic determinist worldview, which is the idea that the future can be better and that it has a, a very particular way in which it can be better and that we should not feel a need to hedge our bets with a bunch of different things, but should focus on a thing and work towards accomplishing it. And you, you, you hear that from other people as well, the idea of not trying to overly diversify, but actually being hyper-focused on, on a thing. And to me, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, how, how do you learn something in school? Do you read a chapter of it here and a chapter over there? No, you get your ass out and you focus on that subject. Like that's how you learn it. You focus on it. And to me, it makes all the sense in the world. If you, there's a, there's a, a saying I like from Tony Robbins, the idea of the science of success, the idea that you, you define a goal that you want to achieve and you break out systematically. Okay, how do I, how do, I do that? How do I, if I, if my goal is to become a lawyer, how do I become a lawyer? Well, first you got to get a four-year degree, then you have to go to law school, then you have to pass the bar, then you have to get hired. I mean, it, there are things you do, there are steps you do to get to that end goal. And if you're always focusing on that end goal, I, I think a lot of it could be like dieting or something. It's like, how do you diet? Well, you diet by eating healthy food. How do you eat healthy food? By having on your mindset all the time, eating healthy food. That's how you do it. You do a diet one day at a time, one hour at a time, one meal at a time. And you, if you're always focusing on that end goal, then you are going to be focusing on what you're trying to accomplish. It reminds me of the uh, scene in a movie called The Savages, or maybe it's called The Savages by Oliver Stone, where these two guys, their girlfriend gets kidnapped and he's, they're driving to go rescue her. And the guy says, look, it's very simple. Put one big idea in your head. This girl will not die. That's the big idea that yeah, you have yeah. in your head. Like, that's what you do. Like That's how you achieve something in life. You put one big idea in your head. Elon Musk says, we're going to get our ass to Mars. That's a big idea in his head. The NASA astronauts, or uh, rather the NASA engineers, they just landed a rover on Mars. Hey, that's a big fucking deal. How do they do that? They put one big idea in their head. We're going to land a helicopter on Mars. That's what we're going to do. They put that idea in their head. Every day they work towards it. And lo and behold, however many years after the fact, that is what they did. The science of success. Those engineers knew, okay, this is Mars. This is, this is the Martian orbit. This is what the atmosphere of Mars is like. This is what we're going to land on. This is what materials we need to build to take a line up to get up into space. Okay. Science of success, defining an objective, breaking out how to achieve it and making every step you take work towards that goal. I think it makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned Elon Musk. I wouldn't be surprised if he does this, if he does the affirmations, if he writes things down every day, because that's that's the surefire way to program it into your, yeah. it's called the reticular activation where your awareness is. And like you use the, the diet example. And I think that the mechanism of how that manifests is like, let's say you, you every day you write down like I will lose X many pounds or I will eat healthy or I will become yeah. whatever that person then as they're just mindlessly scrolling through Twitter that day or through Instagram or whatever, like they start all of a sudden the, 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 uh, the ads about dieting start catching their eye or the posts from the fitness people start catching their eye in a way that they wouldn't. There's this phenomenon in psychology. It's called the, I'm going to butcher the name. It's like the Bernie Mainoff phenomenon or something. It's like whenever you first learn of a new topic, like you start seeing it everywhere. Like, let's say you learn of the word, uh, I don't know, like you learn of a new flower, like a, a new type of flower. Yeah. 
right like the the bogan vf plant or something and then before that you're completely aware of it you learn of it once and then for the next few weeks you're like holy shit i'm seeing bogan vias yeah. everywhere yeah. it's like where did they come from it's like no they're always there it's just your awareness has changed yeah so you just have that programmed in you flipping through twitter you see the diet things like you're going through the menu and you're like oh wait what's this what's this number next to the big mac this 1330 number oh it's the calories okay now i know that food has calories i need to count calories and it just the universe pushes once you program in your mind the universe just starts pushing you in that direction until you until you get your goals yeah so it's not a function achieving your goals isn't a function of how intelligent you are or how capable you are it's where's your awareness right well it's, it's what are you focusing your mind on I mean, the, the human mind, the human brain, you know, I, I'm sure there are limits to it, but it's like a, a cursory example of things that almost every human being can do, uh, learning language. Okay, well, language is this, you know, almost infinite phenomena that is incredibly powerful. If you can learn a language, you can probably do a lot. Um, thinking abstractly, thinking reason and logic, like these are incredibly powerful tools that whatever your IQ is, you probably have access to all of these things. And uh, the, the idea of, of focusing your life on, on a, a narrow objective is what it, 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 it convinces you that that is in fact possible. I mean, we, you, you and I have used the example before of the idea of like lifting weights. Like, why do you, why do you lift weights? It's to be stronger, to be healthy, all that is good. But another reason, psychologically why it's good. And you, you hear coaches talk about this, but it convinces you that who you are today does not have to be who you are tomorrow. That if you mm-hmm. lift weights, you will become stronger. You will change something about who you are. You did that. You have now proven to yourself that change is possible. It is a, it is a positive example of change in your life that you did through hard work. And if, if it applies to lifting weights, it can apply to other things as well. Learning a topic, learning how to speak in public, you know, whatever the activity is, whatever the uh, talent stack is, whatever it is. If you are methodical and if you are intelligent about laying out a roadmap and then holding yourself accountable to that roadmap, you will achieve success. That is the bottom line. And it, that ability to take a problem and to break it down into small steps is available to anybody. I mean, how could it not be? I mean, that Anybody who accomplishes anything is doing that anyways. It's making that become a habit so you do it all the time. I think there's other benefits of it besides everything we mentioned. Just having a, a goal focused in your life, like something to work towards in your life is something that most people don't have. Like if you approach any average American today and said like, hey, what's your one goal in life? Like what, what are you going for? They would probably have to think about it. They would go back and forth. They would probably list off like three or four different scattered answers. Like, oh, I want to be happy when I have a family. I want to take care of like this person and that. But and I think that's one of the biggest causes for all the anxiety and depression in our country is that these people don't have any goals. They don't have any like objectives in the game. It's like they're playing the game, but they have nothing that they're yeah. working towards, nothing that they're moving towards. They're just kind of wandering, floating around wherever the wind blows them. And I think that causes a lot of anxiety, especially in younger people that like don't know where their futures are. They, these are like important things that people need to focus on that they don't. I, I totally agree. And I think that uh, and to, to Jack's credit on the podcast two weeks ago, and then to the credit of people like Peter Thiel, who focus on worldview. I mean, worldview is everything, it's everything. And if you don't believe 
that you control at least some part of your life, why would you make any effort at all? I mean, what would the, what, what would the point be? If it's all just a, a mirage, what would be the point? So I, I am an optimist. I believe that the future can be better. And I believe that we as a, as a species have it within our capacity to make direct changes to make that future better. And I would implore anybody listening to adopt a similar worldview that believe in the future, believe it can be better and believe in our capacity as a human species to do those things that make it better. I would implore you to adopt that worldview. Yeah. And I, I think that's a, that's a very positive message for everyone to listen to and probably a good place for us to start wrapping this up. Um, you you want to plug the, the album and all the Instagram and everything? Yes. And, we, and we'll put links and everything in our description below. Check out that album by Outcast. Uh, I will be listening to it myself. I'm a big fan of Outcast and I will make this album one to listen to. Joe, the album name one more time for the audience. Southern Playistic Cadillac Music. Southern Playistic Cadillac Music. Definitely an album yep. uh, to, to revisit. And uh, like I said, we'll be putting all that in our um, in our. Uh, uh, tweets and everything else going out to, to plug it as well. Give it a listen and follow us again on our website, www.rosesandrhetoric.com or on Twitter at roses underscore rhetoric. And then follow Joe as well at Jose four underscores Cuervo. And it's the same name for the Instagram as well. But until next time, I'm Jimmy Hackett signing off for Joseph Stanford saying ciao.